Hello, my name is Holly Owens, and welcome to Ed Up Ed Tech, the podcast that keeps you in the know about all the latest ed tech happenings. We interview guests from around the globe to give you deeper insights into the ed tech industry, the field of instructional design, and more. We're proudly a part of America's leading podcast network, the EdUp Experience. It's time to sit back and enjoy the latest episode of EdUp EdTech. Here's what's coming up on this episode. So tell us, do you have a favorite education quote that you want to share with the audience? Nelson Mandela, I never lose. I either win or I learn. If you're going to point out a flaw, point out a flaw in the work. Don't make it about the person. There was a time when we showed you could actually use peer grades. If you had enough peers rate something, it turns out their, their average rating is very close to what a TA or an instructor would give. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fantastic episode of EdUp EdTech. My name is Holly Owens, and I'm your host. And today we have Steve Jordans, who is the co-founder and chief science officer of Peer Scholar. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, Holly. Great to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really glad our schedules aligned and we got mm -hmm. to finally chat and meet up and talk <laughs> about everything Peer Scholar. But before we get into that, really want to give the audience, tell us about yourself, your, in your journey into this ed tech space. Give us all the details about that. Yeah, I, I am one of these, what, what do you call them, unwilling entrepreneurs or, or unintentional <laughs> entrepreneurs, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I'm a professor of psychology uh, and for whatever reason, vanity, I don't know, I like teaching very large classes. Uh, I also front the classic rock band, by the way. <laughs> so I have that sort of same mentality, I think, where I That's really... That's a cool tip that I'm going to put in the show notes, yeah. for sure. <laughs> oh, we can have a link to the band. Yes, <laughs> anyway. absolutely. Uh, but, but at any rate, I kind of approach teaching, you know, in a similar way where I like to go in, I like to make it a real event where there's good rapport back and forth and we use response systems and all this kind of stuff to do that. And sort of as a result of that, I ended up teaching some of the largest classes at University of Toronto. And, and Canada's a little different. When we say large classes, my current fall class is 1,800 students and me. Oh um, my gosh, that so, is large. Yep. When it gets to 1,800, and if you care about education, and I do, specifically what I really felt was missing, I thought we were doing a great job of teaching content, but I really felt we needed to do more on developing the skills of students, critical thinking, creative thinking, communication skills, collaboration skills. And so my challenge was, how do you do that in an 1800 student class? Um, and that challenge really took me from what I was, a basic researcher of human memory, and I became a much more applied researcher of educational technologies and how to create them, especially with skill development in mind. My goal in life educationally is to get people to really start using a very focused and structured approach to take skills seriously the way, let's say, a basketball development camp would take skills seriously. I think we need to bring that into our education system. I really like the sports analogy. If you think about it, you have to set up a whole schedule, like what they're going to be doing, how you're yep. going to be assessing them each time. So definitely 
that is key for our learners. So tell us, do you have a favorite education quote that you want to share with the audience? A favorite education quote, Nelson Mandela. He says, I never lose. I either win or I learn. And as you'll see, a big part of the approach that, that I favor is about making the most of failure, or not necessarily failure, but at least constructive feedback, trying to help students learn how to negotiate the negative emotions that, that constructive feedback always causes. And, and that's where the learning is. So let's say, you know, you went for a job and you were interviewed and you didn't get that job. Our natural inclination is to just walk away, to flee. And, and that's a basic reflex we have yeah. where I really want students to, to get back in touch with them and say, hey, listen, I know I didn't get the job. I'm cool with that. But you did formally assess me. Uh, and that means you have some information about me, including places where I could potentially up my game. You know, that's a mentality. I guess you could call it sort of like a growth mindset that, that Dweck suggests, although I have some tweaks on my notion of, of that. But that's really where I'd like to get students to, where they are comfortable with the uncomfortable because they know, okay, there's a potential to learn and grow in this situation. And I will accept the discomfort for that reward. Ooh, I like the comfortable with the uncomfortable. That's probably going to be the episode title. <laughs> I really like that a lot. And definitely pushing them out of that zone outside of the comfort zone is where you're experiencing the things and learning the things that you need to. So I really like that approach. Yeah, I mean, that's really sort of Vygotsky, one of the, one of the first educational yeah, series. That's, that's what a I was zone, thinking. Yeah, zone of proximal development, which is that zone where you're a little past what you can currently do, but not so far past that you feel overwhelmed. And right. that's where the best learning happens. And it is a little uncomfortable because we are a little over our head when we're doing that. And so we do have to get comfortable with that. Absolutely. So, you know, being that you didn't really anticipate being in this ed tech space or developing mm -hmm. or co-founding a tool, how would you, and you also can bring in the experience as an instructor in yep. higher education of 1800 people in one <laughs> room at a time. Um, how do you personally define educational technology? Well, you know, when, when I kind of think of that word, I really want to downplay the technology phrase. Technology in my envisionment is just something that's really good at logistics. So technologies can pass information around, they can recombine them, they can do all this kind of stuff um, that allows you to do things that would be logistically challenging without technology. But are those things worth doing? That's where that first word comes in, which is the educational technology. I really believe in evidence-based technologies through and through, and not just that they sort of embody principles from the science of learning, but also that they themselves have been put to the test. They've been vetted, you know, do they actually give you the outcomes they claim, et cetera. And so that's very important for me. And that's about the education. That's about the pedagogy. Again, the technology is really, in my mind, the enabler. Uh, and that's really all that. So we should downplay the tech part. We shouldn't get all excited because it's because it's embodied in a tech. We should be saying, but what's embodied in that tech? Convince me that educational experience is powerful. Yes. Convince me that it's meaningful. I love yeah. that. That's a great yep. that's that's a great definition. And it I tell people all the time it comes technology as much as I love it and mm -hmm. I always want to run to the new shiny tool. It's secondary to what methods you're using and what the learners need and making things very meaningful. Absolutely. Yep. All right, let's get into it. I'm excited. <laughs> I want to hear, and I intentionally do not do a lot of research because I want mm -hmm. to have that grand reaction. Tell us all about Peer Scholar and how your product and your services helps organizations and institutions in education. 
Yeah, cool. Thank you. Yeah, so I mean, this is this was a journey. Obviously, it took us a little bit of time, and and we went through some ups and downs, which would be fun to talk about. But I think I'll just for the for the sake of time tell you where we've come to, which is. The peer scholar basically manages an educational process that combines peer assessment with self-assessment and the formative use of feedback. So fancy terms, but let me just kind of walk you through how it works, because it's, it's pretty simple, really. Students begin by doing some assignment like they would normally do. So the instructor defines some, whether it's write a research paper, case study, whatever it may be in the area, and students go ahead and do that. Now, they would normally submit that to the professor but within Peer Scholar, there's going to be two additional steps before it gets to the professor. In the second step, it's going to be mostly peer and self-assessment. So they log into the system and now they see what it's up to the instructor. But for me, it's usually about what six of their fellow students have submitted anonymously presented, randomly selected. So they don't know whose work this is. And they are asked to give every piece some positive feedback. What's something this person is doing that's really good? But most importantly, they're asked to give it some constructive feedback, some useful constructive feedback. Give this person some clear idea of some change they could make to their work that would improve it. Give them a sense of what that current weakness might be and how to actually go about making it better. Now, I want to stress part of our approach is to not throw people over their heads totally. Uh, so kind of getting back to what we we're talking about, the zone of proximal development. We've created a bunch of videos and you could go to videos.peerscholar.com to see them. And these are little micro learning videos. So when we ask students to give feedback, we basically address three things before we have them do that. The first one is why should you care about learning how to give good feedback? What's in it for you? That's to feed what's called their autonomy. And when you feed their autonomy, when you give students a sense of the why, why am I doing this, then they're more likely to be engaged and, and do it in a conscientious way. The next video we give them describes the challenge of giving feedback. And this is what so many people underplay. Whenever we get feedback, we have a very primitive, very primitive response to what feels like a threat. And that response is to fight or flee. That is our natural response when someone says, hey, you know, you're not doing something right. Most of us know that when someone says that to us, we have maybe two letters that come into our mind, <laughs> F and U. <laughs> Kinda, you know, we yeah. feel that, that natural yeah, we, reaction. We're very like, oh, this is, this feels very uncomfortable to me. And I really don't like this situation. And now we're back to uncomfortable, which is exactly that. So we try to, first of all, explain that to students. This is the fight flight reflex. And this is why you have to learn to give feedback well in a socio-emotionally appropriate way. Otherwise, you're going to trigger that fight flight and the, and the person's not going to listen to you. They're just going to want to flee your, your advice or or fight against it. And so now once students kind of understand, oh, yeah, that's why it's so hard to give good feedback. Then the third video says, OK, now here are six characteristics of good constructive feedback. And as you learn about these characteristics, they all make sense now because they map on to that reduction of the fight flight. I'll just give one example to be a little more clear, a very straightforward example. If you're going to point out a flaw, point out a flaw in the work. Don't make it about the person. Don't say your problem is, say the thing I see in your work that could be improved is. Little things like that get less of a personal attack and less of a fight or flight. Okay. so. Sorry, I, I labored on the second step a little no, bit. No, I like it because you're a psychology person and you're explaining all the pieces and how it fits together and I'm loving it. Yeah, and, and, and for any other psychology geeks out there, we're informed really heavily by something called self-determination theory. 
which really says you want to feed students autonomy and you want to feed their competence, which almost gets us back to Vygotsky. You know, if you're going to ask them to do something, they have to feel like they know what you want them to do and, and they know how to do it. And if they feel competent, now they're more likely to embrace it and go in. And so fed with that, with that, we, we sometimes call this microactive learning. So they start with micro learning and then we go into practice. You just learned how to give feedback. Now you're going to do it. And so now they see these six peers work and one by one, they're expected to read that peers work carefully and give them both the positive feedback and the constructive feedback in line with everything they learned. As they go through this, the very last peer, we could call it a peer, is their own work. The work at the end is theirs, and they're basically asked some different questions about their own work that, that are meant to kind of kick in metacognition, their sense of what am I doing well, what am I not doing well, how does my work compare to others? And that's one of the really powerful things about this step, just generally. So often, we ask students to do something, but we never show them what the rest of the class did. They have nothing to really compare their work to. But once they go through and compare it to six peers, some of whom are probably doing a better job, some maybe not as good, they get a much stronger sense of where their work fits, how it could be better. And that last step is meant to really put a sort of exclamation mark on that. Let's focus on your work now and, and think about how it could be better. So that's the second step. While I, as a student, say I'm giving feedback to six others, six other students are going to get my work and they're going to apply feedback to my work. So the critical step is the third step where students log in again and now they see six pieces of feedback applied to their work. The research suggests if you just show students uh, feedback, about 50% of them don't even read it. They flee. The 50% who read it are probably looking for something they can fight. <laughs> what can yeah, I argue to like, get an extra gonna, mark? I'm yeah. going to write something in response to your feedback exactly. right away. Exactly. So how do we get them to sit, think, and learn. Um, because as I suggest, that's not natural. That's, that's one of the things I say about the Dweck growth mindset idea. The reason we're not seeing a huge impact of that concept just by the words we use and such is because it's not natural, a growth mindset. You have to learn, and, and many academics learn in grad school how to, how to learn from feedback. Um, after, and it's a soul-crushing experience having a supervisor constantly tell you what your flaws are. Yeah. You learn, you know, that, that's there. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we don't give our undergraduates any, any experience of that sort. So what actually happens in this third phase now is they see these six pieces of feedback. Again, they're all anonymous and they're asked one by one to answer some questions about them. And we ask them questions like how strong of a negative emotional reaction did this stir up in you? Because you now know what that is, right? That's your fight or flight. And it's trying to get in the way of your learning. They rate how strong the negative emotion was. But then we say, okay, putting that aside, can you take that person's feedback and put it in your own words? What were they trying to tell you? How were they trying to help you improve? And so that really forces the student to look at the feedback and in their own words, try to express it. We also ask them to score the feedback using those six characteristics that we taught them earlier. So sort of saying, how well did that person do in following the advice we gave them? And finally, we ask them, how likely are you to use this feedback in a revision? I haven't really highlighted the revision yet, but that's where this will, will be leading. The important part of that that I just described is when you sort of flip it on the head, everybody who gives feedback ultimately gets to see how their feedback landed. They get to see from the six people they gave feedback to how strong of a negative emotion did I produce? Did they get my point? 
do they think I followed this well? So we're trying to teach them with every time in the system to become better and better at giving feedback. And did this person like my ideas? Are they going to take my ideas and use them in a revision? So that's kind of cool. So the, the student goes That is very cool. I was just about yeah. to say that is very cool. And I love how iterative the process is, but also how reflective it is and yep. thinking about yeah, it's it's really it's really something else. I I would have never came up with this um, <laughs> this this type of thing. I'm like sitting here writing copious notes and while you're talking, <laughs> it, it was a bit of a growth process ourselves. Like I said, there's war stories we could have a lot of fun. Oh, I, I'll, I'll sure. just give you I'll just give you one teaser. There was a time when we showed you could actually use peer grades that if you ask the peers to rate the quality of the work, if you had enough peers rate something, it turns out their, their average rating is very close to what a TA or an instructor would give. And so the claim was at one point, hey, you can use this process in any context. I could have 10 writing assignments in my intro psych, and if I use the peer averages, you know, I could be assessing them in a rich way and having them do a lot of writing, a lot of reflection. The TA union at U of T said, hang on, we're the ones that provide grades here. And if your undergraduates are going to start providing grades, they're part of our union and you have to pay them $40 an hour. <laughs> so yeah. all this to say, this is, this is how innovation happens. I had the principal uh, president call me and uh, we had legal battles for a summer and it was all fun. But what it led to was the, this third step I'm talking about, where rather than just using the peer averages to, as a means to an end to get a score, we've made it a much more rich experience where ultimately the student will read the, that feedback and then they're given a chance to revise their work for final submission. This is where the formative learning part comes in. This is when students appreciate feedback. When they first read it, they go, yeah, I don't know what Pier 1, I'm not sure. But then they institute Pier 1's ideas and they look at their work and they go, hmm, it's better. I like that. Yeah, um, that, you know. that's something useful. Yeah, exactly. And, th and that's when the sort of payoff starts to come. So we allow them to do that revision. And that's what the, the professor will eventually grade is the revised product. So they know they have a chance to kind of get their mark up a little higher if they pay attention to the feedback well. And then the very final step of the process is a real explicit reflection piece where we just say, okay, for each of the peers that gave you feedback, tell us what you did or didn't do uh, to incorporate that feedback. Show, show us the thought process that, that you were using. And we tell them, by the way, peers, sometimes they really know what they're talking about. Sometimes not so much. <laughs> so, yeah, I was going to say the other side of that is. <laughs> yeah. So your job is not to do what everyone tells you. Your job is to make sure you understand what they're suggesting and then make your own call. Do what you think makes sense after that. And if you want to say, uh, peer two told me I use too many big words. I looked at the words I used and I think they're the appropriate words. I think peer two should just read more. I didn't change anything. Okay. Cool. You thought about it. Yeah. You know, you, you brought, brought a good rational thought process to it. That's all that I care about. And so what, one of the nice things from our perspective is within Peer Scholar, you can grade their final product and, and we usually do that, but you can also grade the quality of the feedback they give. You can also grade the, the quality of the revision and the quality of the reflection. So you can put some of the assessment on process rather than product. And it's the process we really want them to learn. And so to me, that seems like the right place to kind of put the assessment. Oh, I love this. I want to try this with my students. <laughs> I'm just sitting here I'm very thinking, proud of it. I am. I, I you have to should, say. You should be. It's really, really great. And I'm sure it elicits a lot of like 
emotional response in good ways for your students and also improves the quality of their work. And mm -hmm. also I'm thinking about how it helps develop community, a sense of community among yep. the students and how they trust each other. Think yep. about all those very good consequences to the things that you're doing. And we've demonstrated a lot of that directly through research. So you're absolutely right. We've shown that when this is used, especially in a large class or an online class, it enhances the sense of community. If you have like a community of inquiry framework, social presence is stronger. I mean, critical thoughts is a cocky thing. Well, one of the cockiest things I have in a paper is a formula for critical thought. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. <like>, Ooh. <laughs> it's a pretty simple formula too. But if you believe this and, and just to give people a taste, it's just trying to get at what we call quality-based discrimination. Can a student tell the difference between a really good piece of work and a not so good piece of work? And can we compare how well they can do that to an expert, like, a, like an instructor? And there's a metric you can use to directly say, sort of how good are they at discriminating based on quality? And we argue that this is a core part of, of that big concept we call critical thought. Uh, and we've certainly shown that over experience in Peer Scholar, their ability to, to see the quality of the work is enhanced with every time they go through it. So we've got a lot of research that actually, you know, like I say, says, okay, that sounds great. You've used a bunch of evidence-based stuff, but is it really having the impact you say it is? It's really important to us that it, that it is. So we take the time to demonstrate that. Yeah, you're, and you're, you're doing so much with it already, which leads me to my next question. <laughs> what do you have on the roadmap? What's coming up for Peer Scholar? Anything you can share that doesn't violate any sort of <laughs> agreements, of course. So what can you share with the audience? I think the biggest, we, we could talk about Peer Scholar feature sets itself. So for example, you can already have students use full multimedia. So I, with my 1800 student class, work on oral presentations. They give oral presentations to their phone and then they submit that and they peer assess each other's oral presentations. And so first year intro site class, welcome to university. We can start saying, okay, we're going to do oral presentations in this class. And so it's, it's really powerful at working with videos. It can work with computer code, all that kind of stuff. But I think the thing that I would love to mention here is I'm a higher ed guy. I'm kind of known in the higher ed space, especially in Canada. And we're doing quite well. We're in 10 different countries, getting lots of enthusiasm over its use, and it's really cool. However, these skills, and I haven't highlighted how this process enhances critical thought and creative thought. That, that could be another discussion we have, but it does exercise those skills as well. And I kind of feel like it's starting to do that in a serious way when they hit university or college. It's kind of too late. You know, that's like starting to train an NBA player how to formally learn how to play basketball when they're 19. Be much better to start when they're 10 or 11. And so what we're excited about in Peer Scholar is we're starting to get more attention in the K-12 space. We now have a pilot underway where we're working with uh, 10 schools within a private school system, and they're using Peer Scholar in every subject. So students just run into it everywhere they go, and they're going to get so much practice that I'm really excited to see how this works out. So that's our exciting thing is to try to sneak down more. I wouldn't say K to 12, but I would say eight to 12 to yeah. sneak down into that space and, and see if we can have an impact there. I love it. And I think it's going to connect things. It's definitely if they use it in the larger institutions or the universities mm -hmm. and they've used it in the other schools, they're going to be like, Ooh, I already know how to do this. And it's going to be even a higher level of quality that you're getting out of the process with the students. That's something great that's coming up for you. Yeah, that's um, very cool. All right. So we've talked a, 
ton. <laughs> we talked a ton about, I'm so glad I got to hear about Peer Scholar, but we're coming up on the final mm-hmm. two questions is really three technically um, <laughs> of the episode. So I want to know, did we miss anything and anything else you'd like to share? And then I'd like you to look into your fortune teller, ball, whatever, and tell us what the future of ed tech looks like. Interesting. Okay, so so about the only thing, um, because I did kind of do it quickly, and I'll do it a little bit more depth now. So I, I started off by talking about critical and creative thought, communication skills, and then I went into all giving feedback. Part of our, our argument is that process of giving feedback well and learning from feedback requires all those other component skills. And and so just to give one clear example of that. So imagine I'm assessing your work and I have to give you some constructive feedback. That means I have to, first of all, read your work carefully. That's what I call receptive communication. As I'm reading your work, I have to look for areas of improvement. That takes critical thought. Once I find an area where I think, okay, this is a little weak. Now I have to think, do I have anything useful? to suggest, to recommend. That's creative thought. And then once I get to the point of saying, okay, I now know what I'm going to communicate to Holly. I wouldn't know it's Holly because it's anonymous, but that now I need expressive communication skills to do that. So that process of giving feedback really exercises all of those component skills. And within Peer Scholar, I've kind of described it as happening with individuals, but we also support teamwork where teams can be giving feedback to other teams and doing projects together. And so then we get in the collaboration skills as well. So that would be the only other thing I would mention is that, yes, there's, it's all about feedback, but it's more than just feedback. There's a lot of good richness in what we're doing. The future. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, it's coming. Yeah, and, and, I, and I do have a, a thought on this, and it's kind of interesting. And so I don't know how much what I'm going to describe relates to all educational systems, but in higher ed in Canada, quite often it's still the case that the way educational technologies are procured is some faculty member somewhere takes a shine to some given technology and starts to like it a lot, maybe gets some other colleagues to try it as well, and then maybe goes up to the admin and says, hey, I would really like us to, to get this product. So it's all driven by the faculty. I actually don't think that's right for a couple of reasons. One is I don't think faculty really pay attention to privacy and security standards, accessibility standards, things like that. So they may be bringing technology into the space that's unsafe from a, from a sort of legal perspective. And also, and this is going to be a little nasty, it's going to sound a little nasty, but I don't think, at least at the university level, every faculty member really understands pedagogy, the science of learning, as deeply that's as they That's not nasty, could. that's the truth. <laughs> that's I mean, the I'm truth. just going to say it. It's, it's not nasty yeah. and it's not, it's not an insult, it's the truth. We're, they're subject matter experts. They yep. know their craft very well. Exactly. That's exactly. That, you know, there's something to be said about that. And they weren't formally trained educators. Most yep. of them, they haven't been in the classroom. So that's the truth. Yeah. So in my crystal ball, what I see is in a short time from now, all ed tech will probably be procured more centrally by pedagogical experts who are looking for very specific outcomes and who ask vendors to pitch. We're looking for something that hits these learning outcomes. How does your technology do it? What evidence do you have for that? And I think that'll be a good thing because I do think we, we do have to worry about privacy, security, accessibility, uh, inclusivity, you know, all those sorts of things. And those people who are in the teaching and learning centers, they are really equipped to do that really well. And so I would love to see them play a larger role in deciding what's used on campuses. And I think that'll naturally happen, mostly because of the privacy and security thing, that we just can't let faculty members just try things that haven't been thoroughly vetted. 
Yeah, absolutely. That has to happen before it can be used. And then making sure that all the different things are checked off the list for that security and the privacy. I don't know, quick question. So in in the States, we have FERPA. I don't know if you have mm-hmm. something similar in Canada. Yeah, FIPA in Canada. We okay. we actually we actually go with GDPR, which is the European standard, and and that's just because it's the highest standard. If 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 you satisfy GDPR, you've got the rest. Learn something <laughs> new today. Learn something yeah. new today. Yeah. Well, Steve, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and speaking with me about Peer Scholar and all the wonderful things you're doing. You teach, you're an entrepreneur, you have an ed tech tool, you're just putting it all out there. It's wonderful. <laughs> so thank you so much. Yeah, and, and, and thank you. And if anybody has any questions, uh, I'm Steve at PeerScholar.com. They should feel more than comfortable reaching out to me anytime. Absolutely. And we're going to put everything in the show notes so they can find Peer Scholar, they can find you. I'm sure your inbox is going to be blowing up after this episode (laughs) drops. So thanks again. Thank you, Holly. You've just experienced another amazing episode of EdUp EdTech. Be sure to visit our website at edupedtech.com to get all the updates on the latest EdTech happenings. See you next time.